keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God is jealous. What comes to your mind when you hear that? When you hear the word jealousy connected to God, God is jealous. I believe this attribute of God is one of the most misunderstood attributes of God. One of the first times we read that God is jealous is in the Ten Commandments, the second command, Exodus 20, 4 and 5 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. And the reason why we should not make idols or worship idols is for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Je- God's jealousy The attribute of jealousy for God is one that confuses many people. Oprah Winfrey had a documentary that she was in, and she said the reason why she walked away from the scriptures and from faith in Christ is because she attended church growing up and heard that God is jealous. And so she thought, why would God be jealous of me? And she misunderstood what jealousy means, and what it means that God is jealous. She was ignorant of what God's jealousy truly is. Jealousy means you want to protect that which is rightfully yours. We often confuse jealousy with envy. Envy wants what someone else has to be yours. God is never envious of us. (laughs) He's not envious of anyone. He does not need anything that anyone else has. To understand it in human terms, maybe think about it in this way. I didn't go to the beginning here. Let's think, think about it in this way. Envy wants what someone else has. So think about a person in his yard or her yard, looking over into the driveway of their neighbor, and their neighbor has a brand new jet black 2022 Lexus ES. So that person wishes that car could be theirs. That's envy. And then let's say that there's a person in the driveway that owns a brand new jet black 2022 Lexus ES, and he or she is taking care of that. A bunch of kids in the neighborhood come into his or her driveway, and they're riding their scooters with the metal handlebars, and they're coming inches away from that polished, waxed paint, and that person might be jealous of their car, and therefore he tells those kids, please go ride your scooters somewhere else. So that's the difference between envy and jealousy. Jealousy means that he wants to protect what is rightfully his, his nice car. Envy is wanting what someone else 
has that's wanting that other car for yourself. God is not envious of us. He doesn't need anything you have. God is self-sufficient. He is the infinite one. He has everything he ever needs in himself. He is complete in and of himself. He possesses within himself every quality, every ability, every power with never-ending infinite measure. Every attribute, every mighty deed, every power is God's endlessly without limit, always has been, always will be. That's God. God is the sustainer. He's the creator and the sustainer and giver of all. And he is the only glorious eternal one. And therefore, because of all that, God demands and God deserves his creatures' praise and their worship and their glory of him. Worship and glory are rightfully God's. Worship and glory belong to God alone. And he is jealous of his glory. He is jealous of the worship of him. And God's jealousy, therefore, means that he calls us to exclusive fellowship with him. He calls us to worship him alone, to worship and praise him. God's jealousy means he expects us to love him with all of our hearts, to be fully surrendered to his will, to enjoy him to the fullest. God's jealousy means he warns us that if we indulge in sin, we are out of fellowship with him. We are actually fellowshipping with spiritual darkness and we're provoking him to jealousy. God is jealous for your exclusive fellowship. God is not jealous of you. God is jealous for you. And think about the difference between that. There's a popular meme out there. I didn't put it up here because I didn't want you to see it. But it's an interesting one where this boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe husband and wife, let's say husband and wife, are walking hand in hand. And the guy's head is turned back and he's looking at another woman. You know what I'm talking about? And the wife or the girlfriend is looking at the guy and she's scowling at him. The husband is wanting something he should not have, right? And the wife, though, she's jealous. Is that jealousy righteous? Absolutely, isn't it? Because husbands and wives should be jealous for the covenant love of the other person. And that's what we're talking about here. God is jealous for us. He wants us to love him with all of our hearts and all of our mind and all of our strength. So this morning, we're going to look at three responses to God's 
jealousy for us. God is jealous for us. And so look, we're going to look at three responses. The first one is because God is jealous for your exclusive fellowship, you must flee from your sin. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, this is speaking to the church, flee from idolatry. Paul identified and addressed a particular temptation for the church of Corinth, and that was idolatry. For this church, many of them were saved out of idol worship at one time. Idol worship was a way of life. For many of their family and friends, it probably still was a way of life. For the entire city of Corinth and for the entire Roman Empire, it was the way things were. Their society believed that the world was ruled by gods, and these gods determined what would happen on earth, and they affected the material world. So therefore, if you want to succeed in life, you have to appease these gods, these powers. You have to sacrifice to them and pray to them. If you want peace, if you want provision, if you want assurance, then you need to come with your best sacrifice, pray to these gods in the sky, and hopefully they will bless your family and your life. Because of this, in the city of Corinth, there were temples everywhere, big temples, small temples. There were idols in these temples, idols in their homes, idols in their places of work. Idol worship was everywhere. And frankly, idol worship was entertaining. It appealed to the fleshly desires. If you go to an idol feast, it usually included gorging on all types of food. It usually meant drinking until you couldn't see straight and then being immoral. Our eyes kind of, I think, glaze over when we read texts like this, flee from idolatry because we think, well, that's not something we struggle with in our society. Well, an idol is anything that replaces God on the throne of our hearts. So the truth is we do have idols, maybe not of stone and of gold and of metal. We do have things, though. We do have activities that replace God as the Lord and King of our hearts. And probably the greatest, most prominent God is the God of ourself. In fact, many of our activities, many of our things serve that God And the God of self sits in the throne of our heart. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul identified one of the greatest temptations for these believers, and that was for them to go back into idol worship. What about for us? As we talk about temptations, what are those temptations that come to your mind? What are those sins that you're tempted to do, maybe to think, maybe to speak to others? In fact, I want us to just, as we go into this, just to think about that for you. Maybe in your own mind, you can speak that in your mind. One of my greatest struggles is what? What is that? Anger. Maybe it's wasting your time. Money. Greed. Lying. Pride. Quitting. Quarreling. Complaining. What is it? Say, my greatest 
struggle, temptation is, is what? Then notice what he tells us to do in verse 14. He commands us, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, we, we've seen this command somewhere else in 1 Corinthians. Flee from something else. Do you remember where that was? It was in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Now he says almost the same thing, different temptation. Flee from idolatry. What do you think God wants us to do in regard to our temptations and our sins? He wants us to flee. That's what, he's kind of making that clear here. What do we flee from? What are things we flee from? Well, things that are dangerous to us, right? Now, I grew up in Indiana, in the country. There, there weren't that many dangerous things out there. Uh, probably the things I fled from were dogs when I was riding my bicycle. Besides that, I don't remember anything else. One time when I was in college, I did decide to go visit a girl I really liked in Michigan. And I snatched her, actually, in the end. She's on the front row up here. And uh, I went to a conference, and I thought, well, uh, see her and uh, go to this conference. And I pulled up my car, and I had all my college stuff in there because it was between semesters. And I opened up my trunk, and I was going through some things. And I looked behind me, and I was in a parking lot of a Hardee's or Burger King or something like that, and looked behind me, and there was a car coming up with a bunch of guys in it. And I looked back, and I thought, I'm from Indiana, you know? Like, it's a bunch of friends in the car, right? And they pulled up and got out of their car, and I slammed my (laughs) trunk, and I realized something. I'm not very safe here. (laughs) I got in my car, started up, and these guys came over to my car, and I laid on the gas, I jumped the curb, and I fled. I realized that was dangerous, and I don't know what it was. Something just kicked in my mind that said, you better get out of there. And that's what I think he's talking about here. It's like you realize you're in danger. What's the danger that we're in? Spiritually, what's the danger that we're in? Well, look back at verse 12. Remember he tells us in verse 12? It's spiritually falling. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then he says in verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you. That is not common to man. So there's temptations coming in our life. God is faithful, though. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This was last week's verse. So so these verses teach that our faithful God will provide a way of escape from sin in times of temptation. So what should we do? Should we sit back and wait for these temptations to come, not prepare, or maybe in the temptation just be like, well, I'm waiting for God to give me a way of escape. What are we to do if we're trusting in our faithful God? What are we to do in times of temptation? Verse 14, flee. (laughs) If you trust in the faithfulness of God during temptation, then you run from sin. It's like Joseph who knew God was with him, but when Potiphar's wife tugged on his clothes, he ran out of there. I think it's the businessman who's sitting in the hotel room, and he knows there's a temptation, and he calls up his friend, and he says, I need help right now. Please pray for me. 
He's fleeing to that friend. It's the couple who is in constant conflict and they make a phone call to a godly counselor or pastor and they say, we need help. It's fleeing from your sin because you want to leave the life of quarreling behind you. And so I guess that's the question for me to you. What does fleeing look like for you in the temptation that you thought about earlier? What does it look like on a daily basis or weekly basis for you to flee? Then, because God is jealous for your exclusive fellowship, you must flee from your sin and discern sin's demonic fellowship. Discern sin's demonic fellowship. Look at verse 15. I speak as to sensible, that's the word wise, sensible people. So use your wisdom here. Judge for yourselves what I say. The word judge is the second imperative in this text, in our text today. The first was flee. And now we have the imperative, the command judge. Judge means to decide. It means to determine to be true. And what are we to judge? Paul appealed to them to use wisdom to judge what he was about to present. In fact, look, notice verse 18. He gives the third command in our text. That's the command, consider. And, and why am I going through all these different commands? I want to demonstrate to you that Paul is presenting an argument. He wants to us to consider certain facts, to come to a certain conclusion. And what is that conclusion? The conclusion is this, behind sinful activity is demonic influence. Behind sinful activity is demonic influence. Paul was asking the church to use their spiritual discernment to perceive what was actually going on when there was idol worship. And what was going on? What was taking place in those temples, when there was idols being worshipped and those feasts were taking place, they were fellowshipping with demons. From the human perspective, one might see just these stone statues, people eating meat, people drinking, people sinning in other ways. But from the spiritual perspective, Those people were fellowshipping with demons. They were being influenced, tempted, even empowered by that wickedness. So Paul was pulling back the curtain of the physical world to demonstrate to the church that there are spiritual realities behind the physical realities. It's like when you watch Sesame Street and you see those little puppets up there. And then you watch the documentary that shows you that there's people back there, right? You see the puppets and maybe children might even think they're real. But then you realize, no, there's there's people that have their hands in the puppets or different sticks up and they're moving things. And there's something behind that stage. Or it's like when someone opens up a machine and shows how it works, the cogs and the gears and the parts, and you, you reveal the hidden part that makes everything else work. And so here Paul is pulling back the physical, the curtain of the physical reality to demonstrate to the church there's spiritual realities behind the physical realities. And he's wanting to do that by setting up an argument. 
and the first two points he's going to make is that of the Lord's table and that of Old Testament sacrifices. And so let's look at the next verse, verse 15. This first argument, verse 16, the first argument here relates to the Lord's table. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. What is the cup of blessing? Well, we might say cups of blessing. It's talking about the Lord's table. We have a bunch of cups, so it's easier to distribute it. But it's the idea that there's the, the cup that contains the juice that we use to memorialize and remember Christ shed his blood for us. This juice we're going to partake in here when we partake of the Lord's table is, is not the actual blood of Jesus. That's called transubstantiation. It's a doctrine called transubstantiation. The Catholics believe that. It's not what the Bible teaches. Nor do we believe the blood of Jesus is within and under the juice. That's consubstantiation. Some Lutheran churches and other churches teach that. What we believe and what I believe the Bible teaches is that this juice down here is just a memorial. It's just a way to remember that Christ shed his blood for us. And it's a serious time. It's not just juice that we're drinking and bread that we're eating. There's something that's taking place spiritually within our hearts, within this room. And so it's very serious. And what is taking place? There's a fellowship that's going on. There's a partnership that's going on with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're fellowshipping the Lord. We're worshiping Christ together. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, so when we do the Lord's table, what is it? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is the Greek word koinonia. It means to partner, to fellowship, to share, to commune. It's where we get the word communion. In fact, let me show you where this is at as well in 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, we see this word koinonia, the Greek word koinonia, in chapter 1, verse 9. The ESV translates it different from chapter 1 to chapter 9. I wish they would have just translated fellowship. So you'll kind of get that this morning as I go through this. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the koinonia, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God called you, church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God called you to salvation. And what is that salvation? It's fellowship. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who's personal, that we can talk to directly right now in your heart? You can just pray and say, Lord, Help me to understand your word. He hears us. He speaks to us. He loves us. That's what we're talking about here. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So 1 Corinthians 10, we see the same word used. This word fellowship, partnership, participation, koinonia, in relation to the Lord's table. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a fellowship in the blood of Christ. The bread we break, is it not a participation, a 
fellowship in the body of Christ. So as we partake of the Lord's table of the cup and the bread, we fellowship with Christ in worship. And fellowship with Christ happens in a very special way. This this isn't a ritual we're going to go through. Some people might look on and just be like, we're just going through some motions or just drinking something. But no, there's something happening in our hearts. There's something behind the scenes of the physical world that is taking place in our hearts and our minds. Look at verse 17. It's not just individual, it's actually corporate. Verse 17, but there is one bread, one loaf. Now, if you are able to see the bread up here, it's bunch of different pieces. Let's pretend it's one loaf, okay? Because there is one bread, we who are many, speaking of the church, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So notice the Lord's table, yes, it's individual, it's taking place in your heart, but it's actually done together as a church. It's done as the many come together as one. So so notice the Lord's table is not just for you individually. This isn't a time for you to go home and take the Lord's table. That's why I don't take uh, elements and go to people's houses and give the Lord's table. It's for the church. This isn't a time for a family to go and do the Lord's table as a family. The Lord's table is for us to unite together as one body So again, Paul is using this as an illustration that there are spiritual realities behind the physical realities here in this time when we take the Lord's table. It's a blessed time where God is pleased. Think about that. Worshiping God, he's pleased. The Holy Spirit is active. There are some people who are convicted of their sin taking it to the Lord, confessing their sins. God is cleansing their hearts. There are other people who are just in their hearts about to burst forth. So happy God has forgiven them, right? There's so much that's taking place that we don't see. And Christ is exalted. And then he switches in verse 18 to another illustration. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants. This is the noun form of koinonia. So this means that they are sharers. Are they not sharers, fellowshippers in the altar? So this is the old, this is the illustration that recalls the Old Testament sacrificial system where a family would bring a sacrifice to the altar. They would take some of that meat home with them. And when they were when they were sacrificing and then when they were eating the meat, they were demonstrating faith in God. And God was at work in their heart, in their life. And so Paul gives the illustration of of God's people worshiping in the Old Testament, God's people worshiping in the New Testament. And he's saying behind all of that are spiritual realities that are taking place. Don't worry, it's okay. It's someone's beeper going off. So look at verse 19. It's okay, don't worry about it. Just a beeper going off. Okay, look at verse 19. What do I imply then? What's the conclusion here? That food offered to idols is anything? 
or that an idol is anything? And you're like, where did this come from? Well, if you remember chapter 8, he talked about this. The whole reason we're talking about this topic right here started in chapter 8. What's chapter 8, 9, and 10 about? It's about our Christian liberties, right? And really the topic for them was, can a Christian eat meat offered to idols? And what was the answer to that? Well, in chapter 8 was, it was, it depends, right? In chapter 8, it's, what does the Bible say? And as you're making decisions, that's the first question we should ask. We should ask, what does God's word say? If there's a clear command, obey it. If there's a, if there's a doctrine, we should follow it. But if it's not clear in the scripture, we, we look at scriptural principles. And then as we go to the next step, what, what informs our decisions? We say, well, how does this affect other people spiritually? And that's chapter 8 and chapter 9. We ask that question. Then in chapter 10, we ask, well, how does this affect me spiritually making this decision? But look back with me in chapter 8. I want you to notice where this comes from because they made an argument that they could eat meat offered to idols because the Bible says an idol is nothing and meat's neutral, which is true. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. You can see both those arguments, if you want to say it that way, the Corinthian believers gave. Verse 4, an idol is uh, an idol has no real existence. So that was one argument. And then there is no God but one. So go back to chapter 10. And remember that the Corinthians were saying, this is why we can eat meat offered to idols. They're, they're neutral. And, and Paul's saying, okay, so what am I concluding? Well, look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? The answer is what? No. You're right. The Bible teaches an idol is just a stone. Like meat is neutral. If you go to McDonald's and someone, you know, prays over your hamburger and like the molecular structure of the hamburger doesn't change, right? It's the same meat before and after it was prayed over. And so that's what Paul is saying here. But then he's saying, but also I don't want you to be ignorant about what's taking place when people are worshiping those idols. Because go on in verse 19, he says, I imply that, here's my conclusions, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants. There's our word again, the noun form. Fellowshippers with demons. Yes, meat neutral. Drink is neutral. Stone, wood, it's just objects. But when there's idol worship taking place, there's something else that's taking place. And that is the spiritual reality that demons are influencing and are at work or are behind the scenes of that sin. And the truth is because God is jealous for your worship, you must discern sin's demonic fellowship. To partake in that sin is to reject fellowship with God and to actually, and here's the seriousness of it, is to actually fellowship with demons. That's what he's saying here. Now, why would Paul bring this up to the church? Well, I think it's because I think the reality of spiritual forces is one we often forget. And there's kind of two extremes. There's the one extreme of some people seeing demonic activity under every rock. And I think we should probably see it more often than we don't. 
than we do. We should see it more often than we do. We should open our eyes to it. But some people, you know, it's like everything. It's, there's a, you know, beep, 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 beep. And someone's like, there, the devil's at work again. Okay, well, probably, maybe. But on the other extreme, some people are oblivious to any type of spiritual forces influencing their lives. So, so what's the correct perspective in this? Because you kind of have both those extremes. I think a lot of us live in the ignorance to spiritual forces in our life. And some people live where they're trying to turn over every stone and find another demon somewhere. So what's the, what's the balance there? Well, I think it's in verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, we know that God is faithfully at work in our life. If you're a believer, God is allowing temptations into your life. But God's faithfully there. Like, he's present. He's given you a way of escape from sin. He's providing for you. But then in verses 14 through 22, Satan and his demons are at work in that temptation. They're seeking to to destroy you spiritually. And so we got to be aware of that. Satan is working in our world. He's influencing governments. He's in religions. He's throughout the entertainment industry. He's working within the drug culture. He's under the philosophy of these movements that we see in our society. Ephesians reminds us of this, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And for those without Christ, he's blinding the minds of those that don't believe. He's trying to tempt and to pull as many as he can to hell. For believers, the scripture tells us that he's just trying to destroy our spiritual life. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what are we to do? Resist him firm in your faith. Demonic forces, Christian, can not touch you. Cannot touch you apart from God's permission. But demonic forces are at work to destroy your faith. Verse chapter 12 or uh, verse 12 of chapter 10. He wants to, Satan wants you to spiritually fall. And he does that through temptation to sin. And so we must discern. We must discern that sin, I'm sorry, we must discern that to give into our sin is to partner with demons. To give into our sinful desire is to partner with demons. Because God is jealous for your fellowship, you must discern the demonic fellowship behind your sin. Now you might think, that sounds a little strong, Pastor Ben, but that's what he's teaching here. In fact, what I want to do is I want to convince you from the scripture that this is what this teaches. The spiritual forces of Satan aren't just behind idol worship. It's behind every sin there is on earth. Would you go with me to Acts chapter 5? Go to Acts chapter 5. I'll put one of the verses on the screen up here. Acts chapter 5. If you remember Acts chapter 4, the church is spiritually on fire. People are coming to faith in Christ. People are selling 
entire properties and giving it to the church to further the gospel. And why was that happening? Well, the Holy Spirit was at work in people's hearts. And when the Holy Spirit's at work, people give because people love God. They love other people and they love the gospel. That's what we see here. And so the Holy Spirit was at work in a certain couple's life. They were saved and baptized. They were members of the church in Jerusalem, Ananias and Sapphira. The Holy Spirit convicted them to sacrificially give. So they sold their property. Praise God for that. They were going to give it to the church. But then at some point, Satan came in and tempted them to only give a part of it, but pretend they gave all of it. So keep back a little bit for yourself. Satan enticed them to lie, to deceive, to be greedy, and really to worship at the altar of approval and the praise of man. Behind that temptation was Satan. He made it look desirable, but it was a trick. And at some point there, they gave in, they talked, they planned. First Ananias came, then Sapphira, and they lied. They boasted. And so Peter, when Ananias came in, the lead pastor of the church there in Jerusalem, look at verse 3. This is what he says. As Ananias stands before the church, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you could have done whatever you wanted. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived, notice this, these sinful desires, contrive this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. Notice the spiritual war. Hear the Holy Spirit shouting, stop, Ananias. Sapphira, stop, tell the truth. And they ignored him. And then notice Satan here is blamed for enticing them. You'll be more important, Ananias, People will see you as one of the great people of the church. You'll be spiritual, be seen as spiritual. You have a lot of influence in the church. Ananias and Sapphira decided to sin. And when they did that, they fellowshiped with demons. How? Well, look at that in verse number six. You have contrived this deed in your heart. They surrendered to the temptation to lie. And where was this spiritual battle taking place? In your heart. Church, right there, that is the spiritual battleground. Right? There's a lot of stupid movies. It's probably not a good word to use from the pulpit, but dumb movies in October that are horror flicks. Don't watch them, okay? But, but, you know, even that's kind of a trick to think that that's where spiritual warfare is taking place in some haunted house somewhere where people are running away from someone that... This is where it's taking place. It's actually taking place when you're watching that and Satan's influencing your thinking. It's in your hearts. And did they spiritually fall? 
actually quite literally fell as well. Because right in front of the church, they fell down dead. Their bodies were taken out. Satan hides behind temptation to make it look desirable so you'll be tricked and spiritually destroyed. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Do you realize false teachers, false religions are controlled by demonic forces? Jesus said that in John chapter 8. He turned to the religious leaders that were leading the Jewish worship in the temple. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And then here in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, Paul says that about false teachers and false religions. Verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, oh, wait a second, where is the spiritual war taking place? Your thoughts, this is speaking to the church, will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion for Christ. And then look down in verse 13. For such men, speaking of false prophets, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers. So we're talking about false religions, false teachers, some even within the church, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, where does this all come from? No wonder For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan peddles his lies through religions that sometimes even speak of Christ. They they present the truth, but then they mix it with lies so that it poisons and spiritually kills. And it seems so desirable. You, You go into that cathedral and it, It's so beautiful, and it seems so solemn. And you hear the music, you feel the ritual, you feel the the liturgy, and you think, oh, this feels spiritual. The the crucifix looks so beautiful on the wall. The statues on the side seem so, so spiritual. Religion, though, that teaches a person to pray to a crucifix or a human saint that's dead, that's a sinner, or a statue of Mary, is a religion that teaches a false gospel. And what's he saying here in this text is behind that. It's demonic. Like Mormonism, Christian science, Scientology, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, all of them have elements that seem true. They present something that seems like light, But to its core, it's actually filled with lies. Because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Is it possible for Christians to be drawn back into a false religion like that? Well, that's what he's warning here in this text. So go back with me to 1 Corinthians 10. I could go on and on showing you these texts. Let me just show you a couple on the screen as you go back to 1 Corinthians 10. Satan tempts young, untested spiritual leaders with pride. 1 Timothy 3, 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Satan uses 
sinful anger to get a hold of someone's heart. Ephesians 4, 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Do you realize that Satan tempts husbands not to lead their homes as loving leaders and wives not to be respectful of their husbands and follow? Satan tempts children to rebel and parents to be spiritually lazy. Satan schemes to have employees complain and bosses be oppressive. How do you know that, Pastor Ben, that Satan's doing that? Well, that's Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 6 says, Therefore, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And chapter 5 tells you where the devil is scheming. Chapter 6 tells you how to stand and defeat Satan. Or how about this one? James 4 says that we are to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil. This is in the context of conflict, of arguing, of fights that take place. In fact, if you looking, I didn't put it on the screen here, but James 3 says that if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, he says in verse 15, that wisdom is from this earth and it's what? It's demonic. Do you realize when you're fighting and arguing that you're fellowshipping with demons? That's what he's saying. In fact, this last one I'll, I'll put up here. Well, we don't have that one up there either. That is 1 Timothy chapter 5. Oh, here it is. 1 Timothy 5, 14 says to the younger women that you're going to be tempted to slander. And when you do that, when you are tempted to gossip or to talk bad about another person, that you are strained to Satan. See, we don't think of it that serious, do we? Ah, I messed up. Oh, I'm just giving in to maybe a desire that wasn't good. You see, we protect our homes, don't we? We have locks on our homes. We have alarms. Sometimes we have hidden weapons around because we want to protect our families because we don't want anyone to come in that's going to hurt us. But then we give in to sinful desires we open our heart to sin. And it's like what he's saying here is like when you, when you give into your sinful desires, it's like you opening your heart to demonic influence. No, he, demons can't possess you. I'm not saying that. But it's like you're fellowshipping with demons instead of fellowshipping with God. And that's the seriousness of this. And so look down in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. He's saying you cannot drink the cup this is a, a reference to fellowshipping and idolatry. You cannot, I mean, fellowshipping at the Lord's table. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So you can't fellowship with God and fellowship with demons. There's no such thing. You either will walk in the light or you walk in darkness. And so our last point, because God is jealous for your exclusive fellowship, you must unite in fellowship with Christ. Unite in fellowship with Christ. Look at verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? God is jealous. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of your mind. He wants your will to be completely surrendered to him. Are we stronger than he? What's the answer to that? No. 
He's the infinite, all-powerful God. But when we sin, sometimes it's like we're saying to God, God, (laughs) I'm stronger than you. You're not really going to do anything, are you? Don't bet on it. He's jealous. He wants all of you, Christian. And you know what? It's not because he's mad at you. It's because he loves you. He loves you. He's jealous for your worship and your love. And so he calls us to worship and fellowship with Christ. We're about to go into a time of communion with the Lord at the Lord's table. So look at verse 16. Let's remember what this text teaches. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not fellowship in the body of Christ? As we go into this time, would you in your heart genuinely fellowship with the Lord? Yes, we're picking up a physical cracker and juice. And frankly, they're probably not the best elements in the world, right? They might not taste the best. That doesn't matter because that's not what's important. What's important is what's going on in here in your heart. And also what's going on here in this room, because look at verse 17. Because there is one bread... Because we're one, we who are many are one body. So there's also this testimony that we we are telling other people that we're one with Christ and one with each other. We all partake of the one bread. So let's come to the Lord in true fellowship, in true worship. As we close, let me ask us to consider, are you fleeing from your sin? Are you asking God each day to open your eyes to the schemes of Satan? And I hope talking about all this didn't cause you to be scared. Don't be scared. Fear falling spiritually, but don't be scared of Satan. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. Fear the Lord. Are you fellowshipping with Christ each Sunday as we unite? Is your heart? Coming in here, are you coming in here and your heart is genuinely coming before the Lord and you're praising the Lord, you're singing to the Lord, you're attentive to his word, you're submitting to Christ in obedience. If you're in here without Christ, let me plead with you to come to him today. Would you bow with me in prayer?